people who have your presence. So, Father, today we just thank you, we praise you uh, for being among us. And, God, we do ask for your Holy Spirit to abide with us, to be in us, and to work through us. And, Father, sometimes we just forget that we, we can ask you for that. Uh, we forget that your presence is powerful and mighty in our lives. And may you just remind us today uh, that you, you have decided to place a piece of yourself within us. And may we celebrate that and not ignore it, but allow it to be the biggest part of ourselves. So, Father, today we pray for your presence. We pray just for your, your power to be in us. And we thank you that we can pray that because of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. And the church together says, Amen. So glad you guys are here. I uh, want to talk a little bit about uh, what's coming up in the next uh, few weeks, few months. I'm going to start a new series, sermon series next week called Life's Too Short. And we're going to uh, look at some things and uh, try to decide how do we live our lives uh, when we have knowledge, when we know that it's not as, as long uh, as we think it's going to be. Uh, the next one was, uh, I think Brad and some of our staff echoed this, we're going to do a series on um, the Bible that's going to be called Say What? And it really is about, have you ever read some of those passages in Scripture that you say now, why is this in the Bible? Or what on earth does that mean? Um, we're going to explore some of that uh, in, in a few weeks. And we're going to talk about some really obscure passages and some passages that uh, I'm still shocked are actually in the Bible um, but we're going to talk about that in the, in the coming weeks as well. Last week, I kind of pushed you guys along a little bit, and we did, uh, did the Lord's Supper, and I heard some, some positive responses, which is better than the usual negative responses that I hear from sermons. Uh, so that was, a, that was a plus for me. But I want to talk about it in coming months and years. I want us to be a church that invests in spiritual disciplines. And one of the things that we have to realize is that the greatest spiritual discipline is the discipline of prayer. Uh, when, when, the, when the Bible starts, the Bible that, that we read, it says Adam and Eve were created by God, and one of the first things that we see God doing in creation is speaking. And when he walks with Adam and Eve, it says he walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of each day, and they talk together. Prayer is at the foundation of everything that we do at church. Everything we are as people, even that, even that line that says we have to welcome the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Now, I don't want to just talk about prayer, which becomes the laundry list of, okay, God, I say my three thank yous, and then I give you the laundry list of what I really want you to do in my life. I'm also talking about something called contemplative prayer. Now, you say, what's the difference between prayer and contemplative prayer? Uh, sometimes when you are involved in contemplative prayer, you don't actually know that you're praying. They say, well, well, then how do we know it's prayer? Because it's in that mysterious space when we allow God to speak to us as well. You see, prayer is both communication and communion with God. Not, not communion in the sense of the Lord's Supper, although it is that too. But prayer, I think what we have done is we have made prayer just about what I tell God, and we don't allow the other half of that to be, what does God want to share with me? It's about being together. It's not just about facts. If you and your spouse 
have conversations every day, which you should. It's not just a laundry list of this is what I did and this is what the kids need and we've got to get school supplies and, you know, little Susie needs new shoes and little Johnny needs a new soccer ball. It, it needs to be more about sharing and engaging with each other. In fact, that's how we build intimacy with our spouses. Most of it happens through the way that we talk to each other. And we can equally be as destructive with this as we can in building the other person up. It's not just about giving facts to somebody. It's about sharing our hearts and being in communion with that person. But the other side of this, and this is where maybe the contemplative or the thinking or the receiving prayer is a part of it. Prayer is also God communicating and communing with us. If you have children, listen, I know nine times out of ten we just want them to get away from us because they're annoying. Can I get an amen? Okay. But for that one time out of ten, no, we like to be with our children. We like to be around our kids. We, we don't just want, we want to hear about their day. We want to see their heart. We want to we wanna go in and out of all these different experiences in their life. And that happens through what we call contemplative prayer. And when we engage ourselves in contemplative prayer, we find something that we may not have found before. Contemplative prayer, simply put, is both speaking, sharing, as well as listening. That's a part that generally we're bad at. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm better at speaking than I am at listening. And I've got I've to intentionally take time to say, okay, God, what are you sharing? What are you, what are you wanting me to know in the midst of this? Now, we see many prayers in the Bible. If you read the Bible from front to back, if you go and look up in your concordance prayer, if you get on Google, whatever you do, there are many prayers in the Bible. Here are a few examples. A few weeks ago, we, we talked about Hannah's prayer. This is where she goes to God and says, I really want a child. And if you give me a child, I'm going to give that child back to you, which ultimately she does, and he becomes probably the greatest prophet in Israel, the prophet Samuel. Then we have David's prayer. David prays a lot of prayers that are really good, but the ones that are the most notable for David are Psalm 51 and Psalm 95. Psalm 51 is the prayer that he writes after he has committed murder and adultery, and it is a prayer of repentance. And the song that we just sang echoes some of that. Do not take your presence from me. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. It is a prayer of repentance to God that he is going to live his life differently. Or maybe Psalm 95 where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Uh, we have Solomon's prayer in, in 1 Kings chapter 3 when Solomon is dedicating the temple. And he prays, and it's actually kind of an amusing prayer because he says, God, how ridiculous are we to think that we have built this temple and that's where you're going to live. You're so much bigger and so much more grand than this. The prayer of wisdom that Solomon offers as well. What do you want, God says. And he says, all I want is wisdom. And God gives it that to him in abundance. Well, Paul's prayer, Paul has many prayers. In fact, in most of Paul's writings, there is a moment of prayer, usually at the beginning or usually uh, somewhere that he says, I've not stopped thanking God for you to these churches. I've not stopped telling God how awesome you are and what you're doing. And probably the most famous prayer is what we call the Lord's Prayer, which we find in Matthew 6, the second chapter of a three-chapter sermon, the first sermon Jesus preaches called the Sermon And here's the Lord's Prayer. You know it. And so what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to actually just start by collectively, as a church, communally, Let's pray this prayer together, okay? 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's a beautiful prayer. And what I want to do today is I want to go through the seven parts of this prayer. Because this is a response prayer that Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, can you teach us how to pray? And this is the prayer that he gives them. Now, let's be clear. He's not saying this is the only prayer that counts. He's giving them a guide. And he's saying, hopefully, if you pray this prayer enough, you will find your own prayer voice, your own prayer language, your own prayer words that maybe encompass some of these things. So let's look at some of this here. It says, our Father in heaven, our Father in heaven. Notice some of the things that it says. Our. Not mine. It's a communal thing. This prayer was meant to be prayed as a community. It was meant to remind us that it's not all about us. The first word is a tip that says, this is not a personal prayer. This is a prayer that you consider other people as well. Notice it says, our father, not our master. What does that tell us? Remember last week we talked about the Lord's Supper, and we said we take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of, not in obedience to. Our Father, now I know a lot, a lot of you maybe didn't have great relationships with, your, with your, your dads. And so Father may not be, maybe you didn't have a good relationship with your mom either. But it's meant to be a relational statement that says this is bigger than just about a, a master-servant relationship. This is about a Father who is in heaven. You know, yes, he's far away, but somehow in the midst of this, we're going to pray for him to be closer. Father is relational language that we need to take heed of. What's the next line in the sermon? Hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is not, is not a word we use very often. Uh, maybe Halloween, we, we kind of put it in there. Hallowed is not a scary word. What it means is it's a holy word. Not a religious word, a holy word. Meaning that God is separate from us. Hallowed be your name. The name of God and the name of Sheldon are not on the same plane. God, the creator of the universe, has given me a name. But I also recognize that he has a name. This is why taking the Lord's name in vain, and people do this just like without thinking these days, it's not actually about taking the name in vain. It's about an irreverence towards who God actually is. Because God has a name. God, God has a name that surpasses our name. It is the name, the creator, the almighty. God has a name. And when we say God's name, we shouldn't say his name the same way that we say other people's names. Uh, I heard somebody many years ago says, be careful of the person whose voice never changes when they pray. Be careful of the person whose voice never changes when they pray. Because it's not about us, it's about him. The name. The name is a claim. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. The name is a claim. Our Father has a name, and his name is mighty and powerful, and we trust in that name. 
We're proud of that. What about the next line in uh, this? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where we acknowledge that God is in heaven and that we are on earth, but we hope that these two worlds will collide. We pray for God's will and his purposes and his desires into our world. God, we want this world to look more like heaven than like earth because, because earth is not a great place. Earth is a broken place. Earth is a place of fighting and discord and blame and shame. And we want a place that is governed by something bigger, by your will, by your purpose, by your desire. Uh, Praying for God's kingdom to come in your life also means that you're not praying the empire into your life. Although most of the things that we ask for are usually about us. God, give me this, give me this, give me this. What he's saying is, We've got to start with kingdom. It's not that God's not going to take care of anything in our lives, but we need to pray that there is a collision course in our life that is governed by the kingdom rather than by the empire. And that's a trap we fall into all the time. You're going to see in the Lord's Prayer, it is very outwardly focused, which simply means it is not inwardly focused. Jesus is teaching them how to pray for something that is bigger than themselves. You've heard, some of you have had conversations with me, and maybe I've said this in sermons enough as well. If we are the biggest thing in our story, that's kind of a sad story. We've got to find something bigger to lose our lives in. And that's what Jesus is teaching them. Remember, he is the one at the beginning of his ministry that is going to allow the kingdom to collide through him. And he is encouraging his disciples to follow that example. Let's go on with the Lord's Prayer here. Give us today our daily bread, not steaks, bread. Let the concept sink. God is a father who takes care of his children. He'll give you steak every now and then, but most days it'll just be bread. Don't be greedy. Receive from God what he gives you. Don't complain about what he gives you. Sometimes we get locked in that as well. Well, I think I deserve something different, and God's saying, I'm providing for you. Is that not enough? This is, the, this is reminiscent of the Israelites in the desert. Remember? God said, we're hungry, we're going to die. God makes manna fall from heaven. Well, that's not enough, so God gives them meat. Well, we're thirsty, God gives them water, and they complain. Well, we had onions when we were in Egypt. You know, we had leeks. Those were really good. Why is God not giving us that? They cannot accept what God is giving. And sometimes what we have to do is just be thankful for what we have. And maybe God is waiting sometimes. God doesn't tend to bless people overly that are not thankful for what he's already given them. If you're not thankful with bread, God says, until you're thankful for bread, I'm not really going to give you anything else. I don't really see the point. It's God's provision for his people. God always provides for us. The imagery of bread here is also tied into communion. That's why we take bread when we take the Lord's Supper. It's, It's simple. And it reminds us that's where we start with God. The simplest thing. I know that grape juice today seems kind of fancy, but in those days, it grew everywhere on every vine. Every city wall had vines. It was accessible to people. And Jesus is actually echoing what he's going to do at the end of the story through the prayer in the beginning. God's going to start by giving you bread. But that's okay because God gave you life and God gave you everything else, and so be happy with that. If the only thing you ever eat is communion with God, that should be enough. And that's what he's trying to teach 
and tell us to. What about the next line in this one? Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Trespasses was a much better word, wasn't it? just sounded so vulgar and dirty and bad. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. just sounds so vile. He's talking about sin. He's saying there's, there needs to be a confession of sin in our lives. Right after uh, this prayer, if you look in your Bible, it'll say, because if you do not forgive other people their sins, God will not forgive you your sins. Now, let me be clear about what that means. I want to tell you a story about unforgiveness and anger and resentment. It may shock you, but for about 10 years, I lived with anger and resentment and unforgiveness in my life. Let me tell you a story. When I was growing up, we had some extended family. You know, everybody has cousins and aunts and uncles and uh, you know, grandparents and stuff like that. This family, that our family, you know, we, we were family. We'd hang out together all the time. And some of my greatest childhood memories are tied to things that we did with another family in our family. And then some things started to happen. Um, there were some actions that took place where it was kind of the best word I can use is that there was kind of an attack on our family. I don't know if it was because of insecurity or control or power or whatever it was. And it started with, with one of my sisters and then it moved to my mom and then finally moved to me. And I remember just, just really struggling with this. And you've heard these things, you know, blood is thicker than water and they're our family, we need to do this. And even, they were those people, and you have them in your family, that even though they were absolutely wrong about something and you pointed it out, they would never admit it. They would justify why their behavior was okay. And I remember when I got to a point, I was probably in my early 20s, and there was a behavior that happened that I called out and I said, this is wrong. And it was obvious that it was wrong. But they refused to admit it. It was never, listen, I am not a perfect person. You know me, you know that, like that's the first thing you know about me. But I try hard to admit if I do something wrong. Hey, I, I, my bad, I didn't, I, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you, I don't remember that, I didn't listen. I said something that was really bad. And for about 10 years, anytime people would bring up great story, it just bothered me and I was angry about it. And I felt this, this resentment in my heart towards these people. And Haley was very instrumental as we were still uh, new in our relationship and whatnot. And it was kind of one of those days in the midst of that that I just realized I'd kind of laid it down. I'd just kind of forgiven. And part of it was this. I made peace with the fact that they would never ask for forgiveness. And if I was waiting for that, I was going to wait a long time. And I was the only one that was being affected by unforgiveness. They were just moving on with their lives and had meant nothing to them. But I think the biggest thing for me was this. You know what? I've hurt people that I've never asked for forgiveness. You've done it. I try to make things right. I've gone back in relationships and said, hey, I'm sorry I said this, or I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry that this affected you. This is why forgiveness and making confessional confessions of our sins is so powerful because it releases us you know people are often saying unforgiveness is like taking poison every day and waiting for your enemy to die it only affects you there comes a point this is why jesus says 
you've got to live towards forgiveness. He's not saying every time you forgive a person, why, okay, Sheldon, you forgave sons. Okay, now God will forgive you one of your sons. That's not what the Bible is saying. It's saying that we have to have hearts of forgiveness, realizing what we have been forgiven. Listen, I know my life. I know my story. I know my sins. And the fact that God is able to forgive me means that I should say, you know what, God, when your kingdom comes in my life, I'm going to be able to forgive others. Even those that don't ask, even those that live in unforgiveness. Some of you have broken relationships with parents or with siblings or with family or with friends. As much as it concerns you, try to make peace with those things. And realize that some of them are never going to offer forgiveness to you, but you in turn offer it to them. And we see ourselves in the midst of this saying, I imperfectly try to live towards forgiveness. When Jesus says at the end, if you're not forgiving God, it's kind of hard for God to forgive you. What he means is you don't get it. You don't understand who God is and what God is trying to do in your life. We have got to let things go. We have got to lay things down. We've got to forgive our past so that we can be untethered with both hands for our past. Don't live into unforgiveness. I, I think those 10 years were probably very formative for me. I know you don't want to hear, well, the, uh, my pastor was unforgiving for 10 years. But I was. And it changes the way that I'm forgiving now. Some bad things happened to me seven, eight, nine years ago. I was much more forgiving there because I just, it didn't bother me near as much. Because I'm hoping that in some way God taught me the, the path of forgiveness. And hopefully he'll teach all of us that. What about the next line of this prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There's two parts here. The first one is lead us. God, tell us where you want us to go. God, we, we are ready. Here am I. Send me. Your, your servant is listening. God, lead us where you want us to go. And then the second part of that, a word that we don't really use too much in church, the word deliverance. Deliver us away from evil, away from the empire, away from what is around us, and lead us towards righteousness for your name's sake. Right? This is what Psalm 23 talks about. Lead us to righteousness. Lead us to right living. Point out to us. If you ask God, God, show me what I'm doing wrong in my life, he will reveal it to you. So be careful before you pray that prayer. I don't have a lot of problems in my life. God, just show me what I'm doing wrong. And then, oh, I have a lot of things that I need to really work on. God's leading is saying, hey, I want you to walk in this way. I want you to walk. God had to reveal to me that I was living in unforgiveness. And he was like, listen, you got to let that go because I've forgiven you are far worse than you think this person has done to you. So if I can get over it with you, you can surely get over it with another person. Let me deliver you. Don't give the, don't give the enemy a foothold in your life. Live right. And then the last part, if you read this in your Bible of the prayer, this part's actually not in the prayer. It was written later. If you have it in your Bible, there'll be a little footnote, and you'll go down to the bottom, and it'll say some version of this, because I think people felt that the prayer was unfinished, and so they added this little item, which is not a bad item. It's a good one that just simply says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Kingdom, power, and glory. It's a proclamation of who God is forever. It's, it's about God. It's a reminder at the end that everything about this prayer has very little to do with us. Providing, uh, you know, barring God, you provide for us. God, lead us. God, deliver us. They're all about God. And I guess the authors 
got together and they said, we've got to really write something here that just, just really reiterates that again. This is what the whole prayer is about. The power, the glory, the kingdom, they are all God's forever. And if we just acknowledge that, that's what the whole prayer is about, then we will succeed. So I want to give us an encouragement. This is the end of the sermon, so I don't know how long that was. You know, I usually get timed by some people. But I, I, I want to encourage you here. I want you to pray all seven parts of this prayer over a week. Just pick one part each week, each day. And just, just focus on that part. Just engage that part. You don't have to pray lofty prayers. I think we've, we've bought this lie that we have to say the right words in the right way for God to accept it. But if you ask God to just teach you, have you ever just prayed this prayer just with one line, a couple of lines at a time, the ones that I broke out today? If we just pray that every single day, how will that shape our lives? If we speak these words that Jesus gave to his disciples or some version thereof a long time ago, and then we try to listen, God, our Father in heaven, hallowed, what does that mean? We just think, and we soak, and we allow that to speak to us. This is where the Bible, in Psalm 46, talks about, be still and know that I am God. It's a prayer. I think in a very nice way. <laughs> Maybe God's saying to us, if you would just shut up more, I'd tell you more. Amen? That's not a nice word, but maybe that's where God is. I really have so much that I want to share with you. If you're just doing this all the time. If you would just put down your phone and stop looking at Instagram, maybe I would show you pictures of my creation that you wouldn't otherwise see. Instead of turning on the TV, you open your Bible. Maybe you just give me a little bit more time because I'm waiting for you. I'm sitting in my chair. I've got my cup of coffee. I just want you to sit across from me and be with me. And then when we're together, not just to tell me all things. I want to hear about your day. Maybe in the, in the quiet, in the silence. I will speak my goals and dreams over your life. Now, Sheldon, this is what I want. I, would, I want to see in you. This is how my kingdom is going to come in your life. Receiving that. This is a beautiful prayer. And if we learn to pray it, it will reorient us away from this world that says everything is about and it puts God center stage. It says, God, I'm, I'm going to listen. Teach me. And he will. Father, as we pray this week, as we pray through song, as we recite words here in just a moment for, for good songs, God, we just pray that, just pray that you would open our hearts, open our lives, help us to us be unselfish in our prayers, God. Help us to find a different way of praying this week as we, as we pray your prayer and we stop praying ours. So, Father, today, we thank you that you are our Father. We thank you that you are in heaven and can guide us 
away from this world. Father, our broken hearts are the only thing that we can give you. But we know that that's the gift that you most want. So may we may we hand them to you powerfully and surrender. And may you do a mighty work in us because of who you are. We thank you, Jesus, who has opened up the floodgates that we can talk directly to the Father. That we don't need people, we don't need mediators, that we can just talk to our Father. Just remind us this week to do that. We ask this all in your name.